This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by our Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group, part of S&P Global Commodity Insights. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personalized engagements with experts. All right, welcome back to Energy Sense, an S&P Global podcast covering all topics on the intersection of energy and finance. This is your host, Hill Vaden, and I am here today with Raul LeBlanc and Kevin Byrne. Kevin, Raul, how are both of you? I'm great. I just got back from vacation a couple of hours ago, sailing around in the Caribbean, and it was very nice. Enjoyed it. <laughs> I was great until I heard Raul explain his vacation to me, and I'm now envious. <laughs> well, and, and just to, I guess, add some, some color to that, you're, you're sitting in Canada. So you've gone from the Caribbean to Canada, which I assume in February is a huge contrast. Yeah, particularly the day we left, we we flew through Toronto. It was I'll I'll convert to Fahrenheit. Fahrenheit was about minus 15, and then the next day we were in the British Virgin Islands, and it was about 80 degrees. It was quite nice. Sounds wonderful. It is also the day after the Super Bowl, and as I watched it last night, in addition to, to googling Rihanna pregnancy, I was also curious about Canada and the why we have no. For we, the United States, has no professional sports franchises, professional foot, football franchises in Canada. When there's Major League Baseball, Major League Soccer, and NBA teams all in Canada, is were y'all watching the Super Bowl last night? Do Canadians care about the Super Bowl? I think the Canadians were watching the Super Bowl. I myself personally, who have withdrawn drawn heavily from my family point bank, was spending the day with my family out in the mountains. So I did not I did not watch the Super Bowl personally. I think part of it is Canada has the Canadian Football League and that have a franchise in all the major cities and nice little rivalries going on. I don't think it precludes the NFL coming here and it certainly doesn't stop us from watching it on TV and, and making sure we make catch the halftime show as well. Uh, yeah, I do I see that here in Calgary. I see a lot of people actually kind of interested in football, both the CFL, but but also the deal is it's also a little bit hard if you don't have a hometown team to root for, right? So what I see is most people going for the Seahawks, which is yeah. a good team, but not nearly as good, of course, as the New Orleans Saints. <laughs> right, not not that you're biased. Uh, no. <laughs> the next Louisiana. It's better than saying everybody changes their teams depending on who's winning every year in Canada. That's my son's plan, that, that he, he will go into a game rooting for – Team X, and then once the score shifts, he will sh- he will change he will change his team. <laughs> a classic front runner. <laughs> well, maybe as a, as an awkward segue in, in terms of front runners, we, we're we're here today to talk about the the upstream sector and, and what we've described as the embarrassment of riches that oil and gas producers are dealing with at the beginning of 2023, and this comes on the back of a lot of. I guess, promises to decarbonize operations, to expand outside of fossil fuels, to return money to shareholders, all sorts of different things. And, and now you've these operators have options. And so I wanted to, to talk about that today and see where, where capital gets prioritized. And if possible, if we can focus on the non-integrateds. And the integrateds are obviously very public in what they're doing with capital. 
but I'm still kind of curious about how independents and maybe some of those, Kevin, the, the oil sand producers are, are working with cash flows and where they start putting money. Where does it all go to investors? So, so Raul, maybe if you could kind of set us up on what things look like from an independent producer perspective right now. Sure. So I think it's important here. I did an interesting exercise recently. I took the S&P indices, right? The S&P 500 indices. And if you take them and you divide them into the various subcategories into which S&P divides them, right? You got the real estate sector and you've got tech and you've got manufacturing and so on and so forth. And energy is one of them. And if you look at the last, all of the history since the 2008 general collapse of the stock market, and you, you examine the returns of each of those sub indices, what you find out is that one in one sector and one sector only ever had negative results, and that was energy. And by the way, it wasn't just one year, it's about three years. My point is that we know we're in this cyclical thing, and that cycle is much stronger than any other major one. So even though you're making a lot of money this year, if you had been invested over the whole 10 years, it's not that great and not nearly as good. It's only about half as good as for, in terms of earnings power, for example, as tech has had. Right, mm-hmm. over the 10 year, even despite this year's big drop Okay, in that. So I think you got to take it in that context and say, okay, you're right, they're making an enormous amount of money now, right? But they've also been through very, very lean years. So the first thing that that means to the companies is get secure, right? Pay down my debts, put myself in a better position, particularly because in 2020, I had a near-death experience. Mm-hmm. We, we saw that. And you know, a lot of people predicted the death at that point. Right. And and like Mark Twain, the rumors of its death were, were greatly exaggerated and shown itself as, you know what, it's a it's a, a very valuable sector. And in that sense, I think Kevin, I'd like to get your thought on this, but it has kind of rebalanced the argument or the discussion, I would say, around energy in general. Right. Back in favor of things like energy security energy availability, as well as the continuing discussion on decarbonization and the other attendant things that come with energy. So I guess bottom line is fix your house first, do the repairs. And it's only now that we're getting to the point, or I guess we got to it last year, where it's becoming, wow, there's still a lot of money coming through this. You're pretty fully repaired from a corporate health point of view. And so that I think the calculus changes this year. And so, so Kevin, you're doing a lot of work right now on upstream emissions and emissions in general. And that's been one of the big themes as far as the, the balance, you know, the, the, the trilemma that always comes up is energy security, affordability and environment. And as the upstream focuses on emissions, that's a way to address the environment and keep producing oil and gas. What are you seeing? Are you seeing more capital go into decarbonization as a result of these cash flows, or is it coming in so fast that nobody quite knows what to do with it? Yeah, okay. There's a few things here I think I'd pick up where Raul left off a little bit. Certainly, the realization in 2020 that energy is absolutely essential component of the Maslow hierarchy of needs. You got to meet the minimum basics first. And the mentality in the upstream has shifted one to a value over volume prospect. So how do I maximize shareholder returns? And I'd say there's also, if I use value twice, values 
So what are the values of who I'm buying that product from? Because that has implications as, as well. And that's the realization of 2020. And then in, in that frame, I think emissions is one. How do we how do we produce these products in a sustain, as sustainably as possible? And how does the market and the upstream operators position to basically compete on carbon? And that's multidimensional. That's corporate portfolios. And how does the corporation look? How do my assets look relative to my peer group? And how do the products that I produce and, and you, you know, directly at my end of my plant gate in the upstream, all the way through the products, how can we improve the carbon intensity of, of them? I think Raul would probably be a really good one to jump in on this, but certainly we're seeing the prioritization of the first thing, what we, what investors hadn't seen for the last half decade, which is returns. And that's where we're seeing the capital flow is paying back shareholders for patients. And I think that's the best way to see it. And uh, and that's where the primary one's going. But the price levels we're seeing, they, uh, they are in a position where they can do the walk and chew bubble gum. So they can increase their dividends and pay back shareholders. They can drill a little bit more and produce a little bit more, and they can move capital into decarbonization. All the operators, when I think about decarbonization, though, are in very different places. They're not, you know, everybody wants to think of upstream or oil and gas as one thing, and it is far from homogeneous. Each operator is on their own kind of journey with their asset in terms of discovery. So what are the sources of emissions? Then what's the opportunity to change those emissions? And that's multidimensional. You can change those emissions by improving the things you have, by deploying technology on them. You can drive efficiency into your system. That can have profound implications for emission reductions as well. And there's the whole portfolio optimization. Where do I drill? Where do I drill next? Do I acquire? That becomes part of the conversation around carbon intensity or carbon, carbon, intensity or carbon management as well. So it's multidimensional. And those operators, again, are different places in discovery. Some are at the point of looking to deploy technology, large-scale technology. Some of them are doing sensors and remote sensing to get assurance around methane and prioritizing methane. But I think the thing for listeners to understand is those solutions that those operators are looking for are not universal either. The sources of emissions that occur in different types of extraction are different, or the reasons they occur is different. It's probably a better way to think about it. And so the opportunities to change that profile are going to be different or the technologies you deploy. That's why you see in the unconventional, and especially in the, the more liquid plays with gas, a prioritization of methane. It's a large percentage of their portfolio in terms of their portfolio of emissions, and it's relatively lower cost for them to go after and reduce that. And it's, it's unintended, ultimately, right? In other areas, and like the oil sands, you'll see them prioritize CCS. These are the material that comes up the surface is largely immobile at room temperature. There's not a lot of gas in there. So the mm -hmm. methane concerns are very, very low. And so they have to go for other things. And that's why you see carbon capture and storage. They're large industrial facilities that have to burn fuel to generate heat. And so they're going after the emissions that goes from those fuels being burnt rather than trying to change the fuels. And how, if I'm an operator and I decide to put a bunch of money toward methane mitigation or CCS, how, how is that being received? I mean, the other thing going on right now, and I mentioned the words embarrassment of riches at the beginning of the podcast, as you're giving money back to shareholders, that, that doesn't play well with host governments. And you're hearing windfall taxes come up more and more for the first time since, what, 2008 or 2010 or something. Raul, how's it, if, if I were to come out and say, hey, I'm going to put a huge portion of my cash flow into methane mitigation, is that going to generate the, will, will investors be receptive to that? In terms of methane mitigation, uh, as Kevin pointed out, uh, the bulk of it that you need to, there's, there's two things you need to worry about. The stuff that's being flared, which is less egregious 
environmentally, but in some ways the volumes are are much larger and difficult to to make. And the next one are unintended emission or fugitive emissions. So the deal is honestly, it's not all that much money. And that's what one thing that I have noticed. People are putting. I mean, it, it, it it's not five hundred thousand dollars. It's thirty, forty, fifty million dollars. But you can get a lot done for for that amount of money. There's two things that are holding up. When people hear that. On the methane side, they generally like it. Why? Because methane is so easily monetizable. You're an oil and mm-hmm. gas company. You capture more methane. You have either a way to monetize it or use it typically in a compressor to, to power something or generate. So that's an easy sell in a lot of ways. The deal there really is there's still a lot of mystery about how much I'm emitting and where. If it's fugitive, by definition, you don't know where it is. And so how do we measure it? How do we track it? How do we fix the leak? And and there are a couple of low-hanging fruit options like pneumatic device replacement that people have sort of the leading companies are already through that. There's probably a lot of smaller companies that that haven't done that. But in general, we're getting there. Monetization of that is easy and it's an easy sell to your investors because I can get my money back. I can show something for it. It's like, oh yeah, we 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 stopped wasting revenue. Who doesn't mm-hmm. like that, right? The CCS, because there's no in the United States, cost of carbon, it's a lot trickier. And so people do not, investors are generally like a little wary of that. Same thing with hydrogen. How do I actually make money from this time frame that that is relevant to me versus no, just give me some more money back. So uh, that's what I see. Kevin, what do you think? Yeah, uh, just on the flaring and fugitives, I think that's right. I think it's also important to understand how it happens. People are always, well, how is this happening? Why is it they can't get their arms around it? A lot of the cases, it's infrequent, it's sporadic, and so you have to be there to see it when it happens, be able to figure out where it's happening. It's also a shared thing. It's not, we talk about oil and gas, again, as a singular thing, and it's not. It's a system. And so you have upstream extraction. Certainly, you can have fugitive emissions occurring there, but you also have midstream transportation and tank farms, Mm -hmm. uh, lots of handling, you have gas processing plants. So there can be, the source of those fugitives can exist over those systems. And they can have multiple owners and shared ownership in some yeah. cases as well. And so that's why it's not always apparent where. And Raul's right. Is, I don't want to, it's not free, but it's a fairly cost-effective means and the potency of methane, which is means that how, yeah. how reactive it is in the atmosphere in terms of encouraging global warming, is significantly greater than CO2. And so it is a seen as a lower hanging fruit with a more material impact on the environment more rapidly yeah. than, say, going after CO2. So that's what I'd say around methane. But again, it, that opportunity is going to be, depending on that individual resource class, it's going to vary. And even by operator, like Raul said, if someone's already done all that stuff for methane, they're on to the next thing. What's the next hardest thing? And they're planning that out and looking for that capital. In terms of whether re- investors respond to it, I think the challenge is how are they with methane? There's an economic value to capturing that, but for other things, it's it, the cost goes up. It gets harder to justify that cost to your shareholder, yeah. and that's that's a trick. And right now, because the market isn't really getting a transparent signal from emission, because the data sets aren't necessarily comprehensive or consistent enough, it's hard for them to signify the value back to them in terms of their their equity or share price. I'd say even when places that have carbon taxes, when we talk about CCS specifically. It's not necessarily a slam dunk either. In our backyard in Canada, there is a carbon price. That carbon price is strong. It's only going to get stronger. The government has said it's going to go to $170 by the end of the decade. 
theoretically based on the cost of CCS, that should be enough to cover this carbon capture and storage by 2030. It should be economic. The challenge with that is everybody recognizes that a carbon tax is a political beast. It is a promise by a government to do something over some period of time. And so the financial community is still wary of that investment because it's predicated on continuation of terms of office for a particular political party uh, when another party says they don't may not go forward with that policy. So they discount it, as you and I would do, right? It's risk mitigation. And so that causes an, uh, uh, a challenge getting those projects through the door, even in regions where you have carbon taxes in place. And, you know, Hill, coming back to you, so how do investors view these things? Remember that Investors may care about non-financial goals, but they care a lot about financial goals. Right. And I think one of the, the deals is that for the last 10 years, North American independents were reinvesting in growth. And every time you, you, you take money, it comes off and it's free cash flow. And you say to your investor, hey, hey, I could give this back to you. Well, because it's yours. Or, <laughs> you know what, have I got a deal for you? I'm going to take this and I got these undrilled wells over here. And I want you to trust me that by investing in that, you're going to get even more money later. I mean, that's that's basically what all reinvestment is, right? And it's interesting because as the world has pushed more toward, I don't know, the oil and gas as a future, it's actually pushed people to say, yeah, I know I could reinvest this and get you more, but my investor base now doesn't know this business is going to be so hot in the mid-30s or, or whatever, and therefore just give me the freaking money, okay? Mm -hmm. And so that's important because to make these long-term investments in CCUS or methane or another well or an LNG plant or whatever requires you to have a particular vision of the future. And while you have an embarrassment of riches right now, or at least a lot of cash flows making up for some poor times, as I said, you don't have as much confidence in that middle middle term. And so that means two options that become very important to you that have risen in importance. One is straight up giving, giving it back as, to the shareholder as a dividend, mm -hmm. okay, or through buyback. And, that, and that's important because... As the multiple of the industry, it's interesting, as the multiple of the industry has shrunk, because people may don't, don't trust that those out years, and they're saying, I don't know if you're going to make it, and therefore the cash you give me on a discount it at a higher rate, that makes the price of the equities lower. And the deal is, you know what? The company is saying, I understand you may not believe me, I have money now. And so if you're not going to buy my stock, I will. And that's the big deal around around stock buybacks that we're seeing. If you're not going to buy it, then uh, that's fine. I believe in this or it's just as a good deal. Literally, there's probably very few projects that do better than buying back shares. When you look at if the purpose of the company is to increase the earnings per share and the cash flow per share, the reserves per share and the and the production per share. Right now, buying it back remains for many companies, a select few that are very low multiples the best option but it doesn't grow the company it changes the denominator right so, no but it's a, it's, a, it's a shareholder thing and the oil guys in some ways they don't like it because i'm sort of liquidating okay taking all my money and not growing <clears throat> and that's not what they're only gas people and that's what they are used to doing so you're right it doesn't grow the company but it makes a very compelling move from the people who own the company yeah. And and now, of course, you know, the incentives have changed pretty dramatically sure. to favor returns. 
And so we're moving away from that that uh, production growth. The other thing, just by the way, it's kind of interesting. I'll throw out there is, and this is as as true for everybody is, if you are going to reinvest in an oil and gas project, the kind of project you want is one that's going to get your money back as soon as you can to mitigate that medium and long term risk. And of all the assets in the world, shale are some of the best at doing that. So shale is actually being advantaged in the portfolios for reinvestment, where that reinvestment is happening in the portfolios of people who have choices to do both. And there's an article in the paper this weekend that M&A, specifically in the Permian, that, that there's a lot more discussion on companies potentially buying other companies and that the M&A market that was so frozen for, for the past few months might be re- reawakening. Are you seeing outside of an oil company buying another oil company are people looking more at gas or people? I know Denbury is doing some interesting things that, that are outside of traditional upstream in a way. As people are looking for opportunities to grow, what are things that they're looking at? And is it only share? Well, I think some people, some companies are, are they can see what they feel is the handwriting on the wall, even if there's a lot of debate about timing that will eventually move on from oil and gas. And so as an as an E&P company, I would say they're not moving in the direction of, say, the European majors, where they're getting very aggressive and making an early transition and reducing, uh, intentionally reducing their upstream production. But they are looking for, how do I play this energy transition now that I have money to do it? And that's a very different position from, from where they were before. And it does open them up to a lot of possibilities. And I think they're cautious, very cautious, and kind of sticking toward knitting in terms of what actually utilizes the skill sets that I have as an oil and gas company so that I can can maybe play and convert myself from a, a sprinter to a 400-meter kind of person, right, rather than being the shot putter that tries to enter the high jump. And Kevin, how about oil sands? That's what, what would be some of the core competencies that if I'm an oil sand producer today and I want to grow my company or evolve my company, what are the things that I'm looking at? I think what we all talked about earlier, the, the discounting of future reserves and production, certainly oil sands are the front runner there. It's also unique in the world because the scale of the resources these companies hold is some of the greatest in the world as well. Mm-hmm. You know, you, it, it, So it is a little bit different in that sense. So you do see certain companies writing down those reserves and everybody's shocked by the value, but it's just how much is there. I think in terms of the performance, I think it's a very similar story to shale. You know, the oil sands companies may produce in, you know, heavy crude oil and some and some light synthetic crude oil or upgraded crude oil. But ultimately, they trade on the same exchanges as the uh, the US A&P group. And so we have seen that shift into prioritization of returns for shareholders. And like Raul said in the beginning, you know, there was a, the last half decade, there was a three-year period where they, they didn't post such great returns, 2015, 16, and 2020 as a result. And gradually, what we saw is a completion of the project and development at the beginning of that first price collapse in 1415 brought online. And there are no greenfield projects moving at this point in time. They wrapped up a couple of years ago. But what we have seen is a prioritization or a, almost like a going through their assets for optimization. And we've seen cre- cap- capacity creep of those assets. We've seen reductions in the steam requirement on the, the thermal side. So there's two types of extraction, right? There's a, oh, there's a surface mining extraction and there's thermal operations. Thermal operations is really best thought of as a water handling facility. It's the amount of steam that requires to produce oil. And we've seen efficiencies drive down the amount of steam per oil. But what that's done is it's freed up steam that they can then produce more oil with. And so we are seeing those projects move forward. They're hyper-capital efficient kind of projects 
Uh, it's just incrementally drilling wells and leveraging the assets that are in place, the pots and plans that exist. And so we do see growth continuing from the basin. But yeah, it's been a change in story. Let me let me give you an idea for 2022, based on the first first nine months of 2022, the big four oil sands producers, so CNRL, Synovus, Imperial, and Suncor, on average generated a free cash flow pre-dividend of about six and a half billion each. And of that, they returned about five and a half billion each. You know, this is an average, each one's a little wow. bit different to, to, in terms of dividends and share buybacks. So the idea here, and it shocks people, but the dream of the oil sands was always to create these basically atoms of sorts. And the hurdle rate is building and bringing on that upfront capital. Mm-hmm. So it took many years, very deep pockets. We're talking about projects in, in, the, in the multiple, some of them approach multiple tens of billions to be brought online. And they would operate for an extended period of, line, uh, of time. They're over that threshold. And so now it's just OPEX to keep running. Right. And so in that sense, they, they have a very attractive margin to do that within. And they're in a regime that's very stable and attractive from that, that standpoint. So that, that dream took some bumps in the road. And like Raul said, some people would have called the oil sands off back in 14 and 15, and it, it's, it's endured throughout. And they're realizing that potential today. And that, that's really what's, that's what really what we're seeing right now. And then on the, on the decarbonization side, they, they've pulled together and they're being more aggressive around their decarbonization ambition as well. Uh, the industry has announced a target of reduction of about 22 megatons by 2030 amongst themselves. That represents, I think, 90 or 90% of the production. To give you guys a perspective, that's the industry's emissions around 82 megatons. So a significant reduction in a, a seven-month period is what they put forward. When you think about companies making money, remember that all the shale guys, they were able to to grow production in the U.S. from four million, four and a half million barrels a day in 2008 or nine, right on up to where they are today, 12, 13. It's an astonishing deal on the gas side, too. But remember, they also have by far the highest decline rate on the planet. Mm-hmm. And therefore, their reinvestment, they're still spending a lot of money to reinvest. You know, they'll spend $100 billion that they need to reinvest. In the oil sands, you already invested it and the price went up. You look really sweet right now as a giant ATM that doesn't go down and doesn't doesn't really need much in the way of capital investment. It's a great deal. So as we're looking today, we're, we're sitting here February 23 and, and watching the, the, the sector for, for the next, let's say, six, 12 months. Bro, I'll start with you. What what are either some of the companies or, or some of the concepts that, that we should be paying attention to that, that are beyond the returning cash to shareholders? That, like what, what, are, what are some of the yeah. more interesting, innovative so I either see, companies I see or things. ideas? I, I see two things. I, I see the LNG guys, and they're down in the dumps to, to, today, potentially, because the gas price has fallen. The big gas producers were, were making 6 or $7 last year, and that's fallen uh, here as, as winter was a, a bit of a bust. And the U.S. demand is structurally low, but everybody's still salivating over the potential for arbitraging cheap U.S. gas with extremely high cost and, and highly valued international gas, particularly obviously because of the Russia situation. And so I think what companies on the gas side are trying to figure out, if you think about the gas chain, you say, okay, there's upstream production, there's the gathering, there's the midstream, there's the LNG liquefaction, there's transport, there's regas, and there's the other market. And what you, all we know right now, or what you know, what you know is 
the consumer over there is is paying an exorbitant amount and it's 250 here in the US. Mm-hmm. So there's an enormous margin there. But the question is, where is it and where's it gonna be? And as an upstream player, do I have the chops and the scale to get into that? Because we're talking about companies that will spend a billion, maybe two, three billion at, at most on their CapEx. And how I have LMG projects, which may require 10 billion. And so they're looking at that and they're saying, how do I arbitrage this? What skills do I have? Where do I not want to go and get myself in trouble? Okay. Mm-hmm. But how do I give myself optionality to try to capture some of that and, and use gas as this bridge fuel, which is a, a handy concept, much maligned, but in a lot of ways may be the, the, the outcome that we see. So there's that on the gas side. I would say I see interesting stuff. And the other one is I just I, I do like to see companies who are moving into CCUS as a kind of pure play. Not that I think they're all going to make money. In fact, they may all lose money for a while, but because they may be they may be out there too far on the bleeding edge. But they're also getting some of the best contracts, some of the best storage locations, and that's happening fast. And I think that's pretty pretty exciting. I think CCUS is something that I'm not convinced that it will be enormous, but I am convinced that it will it will be seriously attempted. So that's what I see happening. That's interesting. Do you see that attempted by the independents, or is that going to be largely the domain of the integrators? No, I, I think the independents will start doing it. Yeah, they know the the subsurface of their assets better. And the other thing is for them to add, you're in a position where you're not going to grow much, and you can't trust the price or an upcycle mm-hmm. to give you. So what? How are you adding value, and what are you doing with this money to survive in the long term? In the medium term, you you repaired yourself and you're giving it back. Not a bad strategy, okay? But I don't think that that's not a 10-year plan. And are the, is there IRA money, uh, Inflation Reduction Act money available yeah, for CCS you know, this year? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think there is. It's kind of interesting, right? The, the big problem with CCUS and with many decarbonization deals is carbon had no value, okay? Right. There was no carbon price. There was no nothing that that created an inherent value against which you could justify your economics. And unlike Europe and and Canada, the U.S. decided we're going to do it a different way. Instead of creating a carbon price that people have to pay, we're going to create a a carbon incentive via tax mitigation. And it's a lot more politically palatable. Is it going to work? I don't know. If it does, I think the the cost is going to be to the to the U.S. government, the, the amount of tax breaks it has to to push through could be very significantly higher than than what was estimated for this thing. But you've got now carbon monetization effectively, and mm-hmm. so I expect to see to see that happen. Although, as Kevin points out, it's a promise on a piece of paper, and who knows if another administration is going to come in and take it away. Well, and you got to permit it, which is a whole another can yeah. worms. Kevin, similar question to you. If we're watching the, the next six to 12 months, are there any particularly innovative companies or concepts? And if possible, don't say the same things as Raul. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I'll take it from the emission side then. And, and finance isn't my foray and it's more of Raul's space. I think I would see, and I think we've already seen a lot of operators move in on their specific technology and the things that challenge it from an emissions perspective. So we've, we've seen the development of better methane sensing, better assurances, Project Canary, MIQ, trying to provide assurance around that. And we can talk about the need for confidence in the emissions numbers as well, if you want to. I'd expect to see more of that 
from U.S. E&P and other places in the world where methane is a is a major portion of the profile. I would also expect the methane story to move out broadly away from oil and gas a little bit too, and looking at other sectors that generate methane as well, as those technologies that were largely targeting oil and gas can easily be deployed onto other other types of things. There is methane-intensive crops, agriculture, other sorts of things, waste, coal mines, those sorts of things as well. So better line of sight as well. In the upstream space, I think there's a lot of creativity going on and there's a lot of energy around CCS and we've already seen CCS move forward or it will move forward. I'd expect to see more and we'll start to get our arms around the scale of what's coming at us in terms of the degree of sequestration that's possible. And there's a lot of really innovative technologies that have multiple applications that are coming forward. I had the pleasure of sitting through a really neat presentation a few months ago about small modular nuclear reactors. Mm -hmm. I think these technologies have an important critical role in the world to play, and I'd expect them to move forward and the understanding around these technology advances as well. They have applications. Everybody thinks of nuclear as electricity. SMNRs have really uh, interesting implications for industrial in terms of the heat they can generate. And a lot of industrial processes, there's not much that still beats burning natural gas to generate heat. SMR, SMNRs are one opportunity that could we can do that. So that's kind of what I see, lots of the unique technologies coming forward. I see upstream producers pivoting to their lowest cost abatement opportunities, and that's going to be depending on geography and the extraction process going on. I do think there will be strategies rolling out that have a long-term kind of how they are going to operate in this period of, I think most people recognize that the oil prices are going to be higher, not necessarily as high as we saw last year, but a little bit higher. And how can I allocate up that revenue stream I'm going to have between growing responsibly or efficiently, returning value, and investing in decarbonization? And I think that's what we'll see frame up over the next few months. Well, and then, of course, the service companies are going to want that they were in the doldrums as well. They're going to want their piece of the action, which means that you got a lot of people biting off that apple. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, thank you both. I am going to hit pause and... and I hope to do this again sometime, both of you. Be great. Love it. Banana. (laughs) (laughs) We didn't use it once. Go on. Not bad. (laughs) This podcast contains insights and data copyrighted by S&P Global. To learn more about our solutions or read additional market research, visit us at spglobal.com.